0: Good morning. Today we come to Psalm 5, and just like Psalms 2 and 3 and 4, which came before it, and just like Psalms 6 and 7, which come after it, today we come to a psalm of lament. We will get to psalms of praise eventually, I promise, but before we... Do that, we have to grapple with a few things first. And if you've been tracking with us in our series, or if you've just ever read through the first few Psalms, you'll know that beginning in Psalm 1, we grapple with wickedness. And then into Psalm 2, we have to grapple with war. Into Psalm 3, we grapple with loss and with evil. Last week, Psalm 4, we grapple with the pain and the confusion and maybe even a difficult night of sleep that comes from all of those things. So before we get to praise, before we get to a psalm of praise, eventually in Psalm 8, at the end of this month, we have to grapple first and fundamentally with God. You can't really know God as good unless you come to know him in the face of darkness. You can't really know God as your refuge unless you come to know him in the face of battle. You've experienced this in your own life, many of you I'm sure, that you can't really come to know God as your salvation unless you come to know him in the face of sin. If all you ever know in this life is happiness, or if all you ever know in this life is comfort, then you probably don't really know God. And if you really wanna know God, then first you have to grapple with him. And the way you can grapple with God is to do what David did in Psalm five, and that's to look deeply into God. And when you look deeply into God, You are drawn in deeply into his grace and deeply into his holiness. That's what's happening in Psalm 5 today as we come to it. David, poor David, (laughs) once again, in some kind of major crisis in his life. We don't know what the crisis was. We don't know when the crisis was in his life, but he's in it. And he's looking to God. And that's beholding. And as he beholds God, he beholds God as he is, as gracious and as holy. And then what happens as a result of that, as a result of beholding God, David turns to God, and this is beseeching. Beseeching is an older word, it's not exactly a word that most of us, I'm imagining, use in our day-to-day life, but What a word, it's an old biblical word, a heavy word that means to ask someone urgently, importantly, to do something, to act immediately, to beseech someone, is to implore them to act now. And that's where our psalm ends up. So first, beholding, second, beseeching. This is how you grapple with God. And this is how you come to know God. So look with me, if you have a Bible with you or in front of you, at Psalm 5. And what I'd like to do for a moment is just outline the text for us to illustrate how we'll be walking through it. Basically in two columns. The first seven verses can go in one column under the heading of Beholding. David is beholding God. And in this column, you'll see it's almost like David's head is Spinning a little bit as he looks deeply into God, David beholds God's grace, and then God's holiness, and then his grace again. He's back and forth as he beholds God. And in the second column, the last five verses, 8 through 12, we could put under a heading of beseeching. And in that column again, David beseeches God to act upon his grace, and then to act upon his holiness, and then to act upon his grace again. So we're back and forth in this psalm with David. Back and forth over and over again between grace and holiness, grace and holiness. Two feelings, two truths that we can hold at the same time. I remember about 14 years ago when Catherine and I had our first baby, that in that moment when they handed me the child, I had two feelings both at the same time. On the one hand, I was quite delighted. And on the other hand, I was quite terrified. (laughs) And that feeling never goes away, does it? You take the child home. They they send the baby home with you. It's amazing. (laughs) And you're delighted, but you're terrified. And that's a sign that you're grappling with being a parent. When you hold on to those two things at the same time and you never let go, When you're delighted and terrified, you're grappling with being a parent. It's not either or, it's both and. David begins Psalm 5 now in a place of delight as he beholds God's grace. Verses 1 and 3. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David could not have written these verses any more personally, on any more of a, a, a love level, a familiar level with God. Just look at how he uses the words, my. If you have a pencil or a pen, you can circle these words, even if it's a church Bible, that's Okay. You hear my words, my groaning, my cry, my voice. And to whom is David praying? It's personal. David prays to my king and my God. David gets God's grace. And he shows it in how he prays. David believes by faith in who he addressed last week in Psalm 4 as the God of his righteousness. God, as his righteousness, has made a way for David to approach God. And so because God has made a way, David can approach God just as David is and just as God is. And David is saying, just in these first three verses here, I've got some words, God, Would you lend your ear to my words? But then he goes deeper. He's saying, I've got some stuff going on in my life, God, that I can't even put words to. So would you consider my groaning? See that? And then he goes even deeper than that. He says, I can't sometimes even find the muscles to groan. I'm too weak. I'm too battered. I'm too weary to even groan. So, Lord, would you please pay attention to, quote, The sound of my cry, my whimpering, my king and my God. Isn't it good to know that our gracious God in his grace invites us to his holy self by his grace and that he then receives all forms of communication from us? You might be quite comfortable praying out loud or it might terrify you. You might appreciate the prayers we put on the screen from our prayer book. You might even find those to be unhelpful. Well, it's comforting that in God's grace, he receives communication from us in multiple forms. He'll hear your words, he'll hear your groaning, and if you can't pull that off, he'll hear your crying. David is beholding God as he is, and so now we come to the both and here. Here's the delight and the fear David beholds God in his grace, and he beholds God in his holiness. Verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David is declaring objective truths about God here in these verses. These are absolute truths about God's absolute holiness that God has revealed to us about Himself from the beginning of time. He's saying, God, you're holy. God, you're, as we sang earlier, you're holy, holy, holy. You're separate, you're pure. And your holiness requires you, God, to destroy all wickedness. There's no compromise, no escaping God's holiness. David beholds God's grace in one breath, and then he beholds God's holiness in another. And when you really behold God's holiness, it's terrifying. There's a holy fear, a holy awe that overtakes you when you behold God's true holiness. When Jacob saw God's holiness in Genesis 28, he was afraid. I bet he was. <laughs> when Moses saw God's holiness in Exodus 3, the Bible says Moses hid his face. But that's where we go now. But there's, there's no escape. There's no compromise. We even heard Jesus himself in our gospel readings say not even a, an, an iota, not even a dot of the law will pass away. There's no escape, there's no compromise, but there is the gospel. And it's a gospel of grace when a holy, holy, holy God reaches out to evil sinners to reconcile evil sinners to his holy self. We see this pattern on display in Isaiah 6. You may know this scene. The prophet Isaiah by God's grace, is given a vision of God's holiness. His first reaction then upon an experience of God's holiness is to say, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then God in his grace sends an ambassador of grace towards Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't take the initiative. God in his grace initiates grace towards Isaiah through an ambassador of grace called an angel touches Isaiah's lips and says these words of the gospel to Isaiah your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for that Isaiah 6 picture is a pointer to the cross when God's ultimate ambassador of grace is on an angel but is his very own son and God of grace, holy God of grace, extends his grace to evil men and women through his own son, through the blood of his son, who then says, behold, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So David is already getting a a hold of this, beholding God's grace and God's holiness and yet the extension of God's grace to him. And that's where he goes now in verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, that's grace, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. See that? I'm in your house. What grace? Steadfast love. And about in fear of you. There's the both and. There's the delight and the, and the holy fear. Notice this with me, though. We've already seen that Those who cannot enter God's house cannot enter because of their evil. But those who can enter God's house don't enter because of their goodness. They enter here, quote, through the abundance of your steadfast love. They enter by grace. Some might think, well, if evil merits banishment, then good must merit admittance. And we see grace in the gospel proclaimed to us here even in Psalm 5, verse 7 that says, no, admittance into God's house is through the abundance of his steadfast love. So we're invited here already in this psalm to behold God's grace and his holiness and then behold his grace again. Back and forth over and over and over again. You see that pattern here in this psalm. Because now we're grappling with God. Now we're talking. Now we're really coming to know God. We're saying, God, you are absolutely full of grace. Praise your name. And God, you are absolutely holy. Praise your name. And because you are absolutely holy, you destroy evil, you destroy those who speak lies. So thank you, God, that you're full of grace. There's the dance that we dance. And we're saying, oh God, apart from your grace, who could stand? So because I cannot stand apart from you, holy God, what I can only do and forever do is stand in you and because of you and through you, O oh gracious God. Somebody say amen. amen. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. So now that David has done this, he's beheld God, his grace, holiness, and grace. He now beseeches God to act upon his grace and his holiness. So verse eight, David begins beseeching God and his grace quite personally. He prays, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me I find the uh, New Living Translation helpful here because that phrase there, because of my enemies, might be a bit unclear. What does that mean? Here's the NLT. Lead me in the right path, O Lord, or my enemies will conquer me. Make your way plain for me to follow. In other words, David is praying, Lord, I beseech you, in accordance with your grace, keep me from this evil. I am not strong enough, O Lord, to withstand evil. So keep me by your grace on the right path. That's the title of this psalm. Remember, these titles are ancient as well, all the way back to the earliest manuscripts. So the title of this psalm, lead me in your righteousness. I'm weak to evil. I can't withstand evil on my own. I will give in to it, God. So God, keep me by your grace. There's an old Anglican prayer of confession. We pray it sometimes during Advent and Lent. And it has this phrase in there that's quite offensive, but quite true. And it says, apart from your grace, there is no health in us. Wow. Apart from your grace, there is no health in me. We are totally dependent upon God's grace to be kept from evil as good as it might feel for us to feel better than those people, as good as it might feel to feel more godly than those ungodly people, when we really get grace, when we really get the gospel, we know that we are no better than any of those people. We are only and forever kept from evil by God's grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor Daily I'm constrained to be, let thy goodness, or some hymnals say, let thy grace then, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. David is asking him to do that here, saying, bind my heart to you, God, or else my enemy's evil is going to overtake me. This, by the way, is why Jesus taught us to pray right in the middle of the Lord's prayer Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from what? Evil. It's so that right at the heart of our prayers is humility. Saying, Lord, your gospel proclaims to me how needy I am. Praise God. So now David has beseeched God to act in his grace. And now he beseeches God to act in accordance with his holiness. Verse nine is the damning indictment upon evil. We see it. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self, their soul, is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. That's the indictment. And now here's the conviction, the just sentence, called down upon evil. By the psalmist, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. What we have here is called, in biblical language, an imprecation. To imprecate is to call down God's punishment upon evil. We even have a slide here so you can know how to spell imprecate because I know all of you are thinking, wow, this is really really interesting, Jamie. Tell me more. (laughs) Psalm 5 is the first of several imprecatory psalms. There are many of them and many of them, maybe most of them, get much more graphic and much more verbose than them. I know many of you are just can't wait till Psalm 137 someday when we get to that one. These can be uncomfortable. They can be difficult to read. The psalmist is calling upon God in his holiness to do what his holiness requires him to do, which is to destroy evil. Now, since this is our first time coming to an imprecatory psalm, let me take a few minutes and explain why these are in the Bible why God has these in the Bible for us and how we might be able to use them. How in the world would it be appropriate for David or for any psalmist for that matter or for any of us for that matter to pray one of these prayers, to call down God's punishment on evil and actually to call for the death of evil people? First, because the Bible and the psalmists were divinely inspired by God. That's one reason: This is not a vindictive person just sharing his angry vendetta against someone who stole his parking spot or something. This isn't a vindictive vendetta. This is holy Scripture. Therefore, this is God's revelation. What is it revealing? That's the question. leads me to my second answer here about why. Why? Because the psalmist is calling down God's judgment on God's enemies. He's not calling down God's judgment on David's enemies. This is a very important distinction here. David in Psalm 5 is not in some kind of fit of rage where he's asking, God, smite my enemies. He's not praying that. He's saying, God, Take vengeance upon your enemies. Third, because the Psalms also clearly call down God's grace, God's love, God's kindness. Because the Psalms also over and over beckon rebels to repent and to return and come back to God. You read the Psalms, there is grace upon grace and love upon love and repentance upon repentance in the Psalms, and yet the Psalms are not either or. There is the grace of God and there is the holiness of God, but these two words do not describe how God behaves. These two words describe who God is. You tracking with me here? God is grace and he is holiness both at the same time. God doesn't get mad like you and I get mad. God is holy. You and I have good days and bad days. We're in a good mood. Someone cuts us off in traffic. We're in a bad mood. Not with God. At the same time, God is totally gracious, totally holy, equally and always. So you and I, then, who are not divinely inspired psalmists, at least last time I checked, can pray prayers like this. We can beseech God to act upon his grace. We can beseech God to act upon his holiness. And in our imperfect beseeching, we know we don't see everything. We know we have limited understanding. In our imperfect beseeching, we're asking our perfect God in his perfect wisdom to act according to his perfect will. Last, these imprecatory psalms here reveal the fundamental problem of the world, which is the problem of evil. And We all feel it. Some of us have felt it remotely, watching things on the news. Some of you have felt it in your own families, your own lives. Some of you have felt it in your own nations the injustice and the evil and the cruelty and the, the, the injustice of this evil world and of evil leaders. There's a fundamental problem in this world and it's the problem of evil. And every single one of us knows it's gotta be dealt with. And we cry out, someone do something about this. Is it gonna be the next president? Is it gonna be the next king? Is it gonna be the next city council? No! God is going to do something about this. And God does something about all the injustice and all the evil and all the cruelty of the world. And he answers these prayers on the cross. So we can read these imprecatory psalms and read them as crying out for the cross. The enemy of any imprecatory psalm is God's enemy, not my enemy. And so the prayer of any imprecatory psalm is for God's justice. And God's justice is perfectly displayed on the cross. Remember it was on the cross that Jesus cried out, he used his words and his groaning and his crying, but his cry on the cross was not a cry of defeat. His cry on the cross was a cry of what? Victory. It is finished is what Jesus said on the cross. And at that moment, on the cross, Jesus answered all of the prayers of the psalmists who wrote these imprecatory psalms, and he answered the prayers of all of us who cry out to God to do something. And Jesus answers prayers like this, because what he does upon the cross is he allows the perfect grace of God and the perfect holiness, the justice, the vengeance of God to meet in his body in one place. And then what Jesus does with that body, in which the grace and the holiness of God perfectly meet, is he ascends to heaven, where right now, at this moment, Jesus is still in the business of putting all things in subjection under his holy feet, like David beseeched, and Jesus, at this moment, is in the business of extending unmerited grace from his most gracious hands, like David was beholding. Praise God. So David beseeches God, act in accordance with his holiness, and then once again here, here's the pattern again. He beseeches God to act in his grace. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. It almost seems to me uh, appropriate to say that in these two verses, 11 and 12, what we have is the, the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to David. Because this prayer he prays here, this petition, this beseeching is answered fully and finally in Jesus. I think of those connect-the-dot puzzles you get as a kid. Maybe not as a kid. Maybe some of you love connect-the-dot puzzles. I don't know. If we were to connect the dots here of verses 11 and 12, it would paint for us a portrait of Jesus. Jesus himself is our refuge in verse 11. In Jesus and because of Jesus, we will forever rejoice and sing for joy. In Jesus, and because of Jesus, his protection is forever spread over us in Christ. And we will forever exalt in his name. And in Christ, verse 12 is fulfilled. We are made righteous. We are blessed. Paul says in Ephesians, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we are covered forever in Christ with favor as with a shield. Verses 11 and 12 for us paint the portrait of Jesus' face. So if all we've known in our lives is happiness, and if all we've known is comfort, then we might not really know God. If we really want to know God, we have to do what David did in Psalm 5. Look deeply into him. Look deeply into his grace Look deeply into his holiness and then back to his grace again. And keep looking. Keep grappling. Then you'll really come to know God. And it will lead you to lament, yes. But it will also lead you to praise. So let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you once again for your word and for your Son, Jesus Christ, and for your Holy Spirit, who binds our wandering hearts to you. God, help us to know you, to really know you, not to settle for less. Take us deeply, and more and more deeply, O oh God, into your grace, and into your holiness. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.